You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. There are a lot of myths and misconceptions about hypnosis. The hypnotist can make you do things against your will. Only weak-minded people can be hypnotized, or worse yet, you can get stuck in hypnosis and never come out. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Herbert Spiegel, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University and co-author of several books, including his most recent book, Trance and Treatment, The Clinical Uses of Hypnosis. Today we are discussing hypnosis and how it is used for clinical use and habit control. Welcome, Dr. Spiegel. Thank you very much. We recently spoke about the hypnotic induction profile. What is the clinical usefulness of this, and what information do you learn? We learn three important things. Number one, who is the person that we're dealing with, which is quite a radical departure from classical medical care. So often the focus is on the symptoms, and this is a way of approaching the patient by finding out who is the person that has the problem, and on the basis of that, we can now integrate the symptomatology with the nature of the person's style. And now the profile gives us a chance to identify three major types of personalities. The people on the low side of the scale are usually brain-oriented. We call them Apollonians. The people on the high side of the scale are usually heart-oriented, emotion-oriented. With They don't give as much attention to their intellectual capacity as their feeling capacity. We call those personality Dionysians. And the mid-range group are people who are about equal amount of cognitive and emotional value as the way they live their lives. And we identify this mid-range group as Odesians. Now, knowing that influences the way we can interpret the symptoms that they have. Another thing we learned from that is that the diagnosis, psychiatric diagnosis, usually on the low side, those are fallouts. The fallout pathologically are usually diagnoses like schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorders, hypochondriasis. And the people on the high side of the scale usually are the people who get hysteria and dissociative identity disorders. And the People in the mid-range are usually people who get depressions, primary depressions, reactive depressions, and personality disorders. So knowing that, it gives us an aid in clarifying diagnosis. As a result of that, it helps us make a disciplined way of picking the appropriate strategy for each of those categories. So in general, the people on the low side of the scale the kind of therapy used for them are usually why therapies. Those people want to know why this, why this, and why this, and it's necessary to offer therapies that respond to that inquiry. On the other side, on the extreme high side, those people are not interested in why. They're interested in tell me what to do. So by the focus of the therapy there is to tell people what to do, how to correct the disorder. And the people in the mid-range are like an equal balance between the two, 
and it's a way of getting involved in them in a more interpersonal way with a balance between the head and the heart. Now, I'm summarizing an awful lot in a very short time by those general comments. Well, I'm certain I can speak for the listeners as well as myself. Uh, We're all wondering uh, which category we would fit in, but that certainly is a very interesting way to approach profiling the patients in terms of your therapy that you subsequently perform on them. The fascinating thing is that what started off as a test for hypnotizability has ended up as a disciplined way of getting a clarification of diagnosis and the presence of absence of severe mental illness. If you have just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and with me is Dr. Herbert Spiegel, clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and co-author of several books on hypnosis. Dr. Spiegel, what is the use of hypnosis with regard to habits such as smoking and eating and things like that? It's a very effective way of controlling habits like smoking and overeating. How do you do this? Usually this can be done in one 45 to 50 minute session. During that time, we take about five to six minutes to do the hypnotic induction profile. Then knowing that, knowing the personality style, uh, we now know how to introduce a different perspective on the habit, say the habit of smoking. So instead of going into long history about when you started and how many, uh, how much you smoked and so on, we get right into changing perspective to bring about habit control and in a systematic way, three important points are presented to the patient. One, for your body, smoking is a poison. Two, you need your body to live. Three, you owe your body this respect and protection. This is your way of not acknowledging the fragile, precious nature of your body at the same time your way of seeing yourself as your body's keeper. You are, in truth, your body's keeper. When you make this commitment to respect your body, you have within you the power to so radically change your point of view toward your body that you are now committed to protect it from the poison of smoking. During that time, the patients are taught how to go into self-hypnosis, repeat the three points of self, and come out. And they're taught to do that 10 times a day. It takes about 20 seconds. And then they're informed of this. The circuitry in the brain is plastic. There are 100 billion nerve cells in the brain and about 100 trillion circuits. And by doing this exercise, self-hypnosis exercise 10 times a day, they establish a new circuitry in the brain What fires together, wires together. And after a few days, weeks, or months, no more than two or three months, a new brain circuit is established. It makes this a physical circuitry that makes this new perspective a permanent circuitry in the brain. And this is used as well for eating disorders? Likewise, in eating disorders, the same principle, only there the first point is Overeating is a poison. We make the difference between eating and overeating, but the second two points are the same, and then we go through the same instruction period. And what other clinical disorders do you use this hypnosis in? Pain. 
for example, in pain, they're told that instead of saying don't have pain, you learn, focus on the alternative, which is a cool, tingling numbness. And by learning to focus on the numbness, you learn to filter the hurt out of the pain. In other words, we introduce the principle of this. One of the most difficult ways to control pain is to say don't have it. Because if you say don't, it gets worse. For example, if I say to you, don't think about white polar bears, what are you thinking about? Same thing. If you say don't have pain, you only acknowledge it and you make it worse. So instead of saying don't have the pain, by focusing on your imagined tingling numbness, you then learn to feel the numbness more than the pain, and as a result, you filter the hurt out of the pain. By doing this exercise, again, 10 times a day, by developing this tingling numbness, the people on the low side have more difficulty in doing it. It takes them a longer period to do it, but they can learn to control minor pains. The people on the mid-range and the high side are very capable of controlling large amounts of pain. In fact, people on the high side of the scale can even have major surgery done without any chemical anesthesia. So effective is this psychological control with tingling numbness. Now, you mentioned that in smoking, it took one 45-minute session. Similarly with eating and pain and anxiety, similarly one session? Yeah, usually one or two sessions. In general, the theme is this. See, the old-fashioned notion that a a person comes to a doctor and their assumption is, fix me up. It's like taking a car to a garage to fix up the car, and the patient expects something to be done to them. Here, it's the other way around. They are taught to take charge themselves, and that can be done in one to two sessions. And if you don't take charge, nothing's going to happen. How successful is this? Well, it varies with different things. With habit control, like smoking, it's about, for mid-range and highs, it's about 70% successful long-term control. With overeating, it's uh, less successful. It's more like 50%, especially for people who are not genetically fat. And for pain and for anxiety control, it's usually about 70 80%, depending on the degree of anxiety. Dr. Spiegel, with these certainly optimistic numbers, why is it not used more in clinical medicine in terms of smoking cessation and eating disorders? I think it's because the medical profession is not adequately sophisticated about the psychological power. And it's largely because there is still so much misconception about hypnosis. In fact, most doctors are really ignorant about hypnosis. And it's too bad because if they appreciated it, I think they would be glad to use it because it's such a great adjunct for effective control of symptomatology. In your own practice, Dr. Spiegel, in hypnosis, do you use adjunctive therapies such as medications? If somebody has an intact profile, that's about 80% of the population, uh, in general, um, the symptoms, they come for psychiatric symptoms. I'm not talking about organic pathology like appendicitis. I'm talking about the 
psychophysiological symptoms like anxiety and phobias and insomnia and things like that. In general, if they have intact profiles, the primary treatment is with psychotherapy using hypnosis as an adjunct. If they have a, a break in the rhythm of concentration, what we call a decrement profile, then our primary treatment is medication. I want to thank Dr. Herbert Spiegel, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the clinical uses of medical hypnosis today. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.